Well, good morning. Again. Right? I mean, this is the third time now I'm talking to you guys. You're probably getting tired of me, right? But I am going to forge on. I am going to continue on because I believe, no, I know that God has a good word for us today. We don't want to miss that. Now, there were a couple of things that took place this week that eh, I maybe sort of kind of wished I'd have missed. Does anybody know what happened this week? Big on my calendar. Hockey season started, yeah, 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 yeah. But you know what? I, I'm, I'm happy about that. I really am because I love to watch hockey. But, but I know that for myself and many of the Blackhawk fans that maybe I, are there any Blackhawk fans? Okay, yeah, we got a few. Solidarity. It's it's gonna be a long year. It's gonna be a little bit rough, you know. If the the preseason and really the first couple of games are any indication, although last night was sort of a an, a, an enigma, if you will. But if that's any indication, it, it may be at times kind of hard to watch, right? But, but I will watch. I will watch because that is what a fan does, right? Fan is short for fanatic. And a true fanatic will stick by their team even when they're losers. Right, Cub fans? <laughs> I love to mess with you Cub fans. It's fun. But look, hey, this year, I'm pretty sure that I'm going to be feeling your pain. I, I really am. But you know, it's really interesting to see how professional athletes react to playing poorly. How they react, react to losing, to not winning. You may have seen some of these guys interviewed from time to time. And one thing you hear many of them say is... We have to keep it simple. We have to get back to the basics. We have to get back to the fundamentals of the game. Athletes know this. Coaches absolutely know this. In fact, in 1961, the Green Bay Packers, relax all you Bear fans, it's okay, I'm just telling a story. In 1961, the Green Bay Packers lost the NFL championship to the Philadelphia Eagles. The next year, at the start of training camp, Coach Vince Lombardi said, we're starting over. We're going back to the basics. And he began camp with one of the most elemental statements you could imagine. Gentlemen, he said, as he held up a ball, he said, this is a football. I mean, is there anything more basic than that? But the fundamentals are important. And in the weeks that followed, the emphasis was on blocking and tackling and passing and catching. All the things that these elite athletes had learned when they were just wee kids learning the game. But Lombardi understood the importance of the basics. And six months later, the Green Bay Packers defeated the New York Giants 37-zip to win the NFL championship. Fundamentals are important. Fundamentals are critical. And today, friends, we're going back to the basics of the gospel, the fundamentals of the gospel. 
We're in a series of messages entitled, A Joy-Filled Life. And it was some 2,000 or so years ago that the Apostle Paul wrote this beautiful letter to the church at Philippi. And this letter that we've come to know as the book of Philippians, it still speaks to us today. And in it, we are seeking to know more and more about how we can have the kind of joy that Paul lived with. Now, over the first several weeks of the study, we've seen the kind of adversity and opposition that Paul had to deal with. He'd been beaten. He'd been thrown in jail in Philippi for doing something good, right? Preaching the gospel. He'd endured numerous trials before Roman officials. Some of those were very unjust. He eventually appealed his case to Caesar, for which he had to go to Rome. And on his way to Rome, he had all kinds of adversity. He was shipwrecked and suffered all kinds of other challenging circumstances. When he got to Rome, he was chained to a praetorian guard 24 hours a day. Paul was a prisoner. And he was a prisoner there, chained to that guard for two years before his case finally came before Caesar. Yet Paul chose to rejoice. Paul chose joy despite his circumstances. How could he do that? Well, Paul, he viewed what had happened to him and his circumstances through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And throughout this letter, he's encouraging the Philippians, and of course he's encouraging us as well, to do the very same thing, to change our perspective. See, it's only when we understand who God is and who we are in relation to Him, it's only when we humble ourselves before the God of creation that we find true joy. And when we understand the truth and the fundamentals of the gospel, we find joy in knowing Christ. Now, our scripture for this morning is found in Philippians chapter 3. We're going to look at the first 11 verses of Philippians chapter 3. So if you want to turn in your Bibles there, that'd be great. If not, we're going to have it on the screen for you. But before we dig in here, we want to go back to the basics of the gospel because that's exactly where Paul takes us. See, in this passage, Paul talks about righteousness. Righteousness. And friends, that is a theology 101 word that we must know. Because if we don't understand righteousness, and, and justice for that matter, because in the Greek and the Hebrew languages, those two words are inextricably linked. If we don't understand righteousness and justice, we don't understand the gospel. And friends, nothing, nothing can be more important than this. Listen, listen, because we need righteousness more than anything. Righteousness is our greatest need. Now, if you, if you recall back in our study of the attributes of God, we learned that God is perfectly righteous and just. 
In other words, God always does what's right, and he is the final standard of what is right. Speaking of God, Moses says in Deuteronomy 32, all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness, and without iniquity, just and right or righteous is he. And I want us to understand that these really are legal terms, judicial terms that you might hear in a courtroom. And because God is perfectly righteous and just, he must treat us according to what we deserve. He's got to do it. If God didn't punish sin, he wouldn't be just. So because he's perfectly just and righteous, he must punish sin, right? Sin is wrong, and sin deserves punishment. We also know from Scripture that we're all sinners. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And friends, if we are absolutely honest with ourselves, if we step back and look objectively, we will admit that Paul is absolutely correct. I see it in me. I know it. I see my sinful nature. I know that I fall short of God's glory. And elsewhere in Romans chapter 6, Paul tells us what it is we deserve for our sin. There he says the wages of sin is what? It's death. Death. That's what we deserve according to the perfect righteousness and justice of God. So, if we were to stand before a perfectly righteous and just God on our own, God would have no choice but to declare us guilty and sentence us to death. But, but friends, and here is the beauty of the gospel, don't miss this, God sent his one and only son to pay the price for our sin. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that God made him who had no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So when we stand in that courtroom before the perfectly just judge God, and make no mistake, friends, that day is coming. That day will come, judgment day. If we have placed our trust in Jesus God will declare our sins to be forgiven, wiped away by the blood of Jesus, nailed to the cross, the penalty paid. The judge will be satisfied. We are justified. Justified. Ooh, there's another theology 101 word. It's the basics of the gospel. We must know what it means to be justified. Because this is also a legal term. See, when we place our faith in Jesus as our Savior, we are declared righteous in God's sight. We are justified. The righteousness of Christ, that perfect, sinless life that Christ lived, is imputed to us. We are seen as justified. We are made right with God. That's why Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, Therefore, in other words, because of what Jesus has done, Therefore, there is now no condemnation. We are not guilty for those who are in Christ 
Jesus. Isn't that amazing? In the sight of God, we are seen as perfectly righteous. Friends, that is the gospel. Those are the basics. And this is why Paul writes in verse 1 of Philippians chapter 3, as we get into our, 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 our scripture here, he says, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Rejoice in the Lord. Paul says rejoice. And truly, friends, this is the underlying theme of this entire book, and rightfully so. Because we know that our joy is not found in our circumstances. Our joy is not found in our situations. No, our joy is found in the Lord and the Lord alone. Again, if it's only when we understand who God is and who we are in relation to him, and what he has done for us, it's only when we understand that, that we can trust him fully, that we can give him everything, that we can choose joy, regardless of the circumstances and the challenges in life that we find. This may be a good time to throw in our memory verse. Nehemiah 8.10. Anybody? The joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Friends, that is what gets us through. And it's interesting because Paul says, you know, it's no problem for me to keep reminding you of this. You know, Paul understood the importance of the basics. He understood the importance of repetition, right? Talked about this in our series on Proverbs. Repetition is one of the ways that we learn best. We hear the same things over and over and over again. We need these reminders of the basics of the gospel, the truths of Scripture. Because it is a safeguard. And friends, we will never stop preaching the basics of the gospel here at Hope Church. Never will we ever get away from that. Because it is a safeguard. It's exactly what Paul says. Safeguard against what, though? Well, Paul actually tells us in the following verse. In verse 2, he says, Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. So who's Paul talking about here? Well, back in his day, there were these Jewish-influenced legalists, Judaizers, they were called, and what they were teaching the Philippians was incredibly deceptive. See, they didn't necessarily deny that Jesus was the Messiah, and they didn't necessarily deny that the gospel was for salvation, but what these false teachers insisted was that one could only come to fullness in the gospel through strict obedience to the Mosaic law and by being circumcised. They had to do stuff in addition to what Christ did. But Paul's saying, no, these people don't listen to them. They're dogs. He calls them dogs. And it's not like, yo, yo, what up, dog? I'm sorry. I apologize for that. I had to throw it in there. But this is not a term of endearment. No. Dogs back then, they lived on the streets. They were scavengers. 
They lived on the refuse and the filth that was found in the street. Not like you're fluffy at home. Dogs were unclean. And this is the exact term that Jews would use against Gentiles, the ones who they considered to be ritually unclean. He calls them evildoers. Some translations say evil workers, which is a word against their emphasis on righteousness with God by works, right? By doing stuff. You got to do stuff. And when he calls them mutilators of the flesh, it's, it's a pun that we really don't understand in the English language. It's a play on the Greek words uh, in, with circumcision because their insistence on being circumcised in order to become a Christian, you know, doing that, you got to do that. Paul says, no, this is, this is mutilation. He says it's mere cutting. It's really akin to the pagan practices that were forbidden in Leviticus chapter 21. See, Paul wants them to stick to the basics of the gospel, stick to the truth about Jesus. Are there any false teachers out there today? You better believe it, right? Preaching all kinds of false gospels, prosperity gospel, works gospel, the basics. Paul says, remember the fundamentals. Stay with the basics of the gospel. In verse 3, he says, it is we who are the circumcision. And when Paul talks about circumcision, he's not talking about physical circumcision. He's talking about circumcision of the heart. We are the circumcision. We who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. See, these false teachers, they considered themselves circumcised and truly righteous in God's sight. But Paul says, no, 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 no. That is not what defines circumcision. It is not what defines someone who is truly righteous. And he goes on to list three characteristics of someone who is truly righteous. He says, first, we serve God by his spirit. Some translations say worship God in his spirit. In John chapter 4, Jesus tells us that God is spirit. And his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. As opposed, as opposed to this fleshly and external worship that's emphasized by these false teachers. Second, he says, we boast in Jesus. Some translations say we glory or we rejoice in Christ Jesus. There's that word again. Because we know that our joy is not found in our ability to be justified by keeping the law, by doing stuff. That's not how this works. Our joy is found in knowing Jesus as our Lord and Savior. That and that alone. The third characteristic of true circumcision, true righteousness, is putting no confidence in the flesh. We don't trust in our own ability to be righteous in God's sight by external works. No. True circumcision of the heart means our only confidence is in Jesus. It's our only hope. But look, if anybody had a shot at this, really, it was Paul. I mean, listen to what he says in the following verses. He says, Though I myself has re have reason for such confidence, 
If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. And Paul saying here, if anybody has reason to boast in the flesh, it should be him. And he goes on to list four things that were his possession at birth. He was born a Jew. He was born one of the chosen people, the nation of Israel. He was circumcised on the eighth day according to the Mosaic law. He was from a distinguished tribe within the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. Very prestigious. It was from Benjamin that came the first king, King Saul. It says he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, which probably meant that, that he spoke Aramaic and that he could trace his ancestry all the way back, all the way back. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. And then Paul goes into his, his works, right? Things that were his personal choice, things that he did more as he thought, reasons for confidence in the flesh. He was a Pharisee. He was a member of the ruling elite. He persecuted the church. And as far as the law was concerned, Paul had achieved the standard of righteousness that was accepted by the men of that time. But here's the deal. This falls way short of God's holy standard. And before Paul's eyes were opened on the road to Damascus, he, he, he now sees that he was deceiving himself. He was deceiving himself into thinking that he was blameless. But if anybody could claim righteousness based on law-keeping at works, it was Paul. Listen to what he says next, though. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Everything that, that, that Paul had gained through his pedigree and, and all his works, he sees that all as a loss for the sake of Christ. And I'm sure that before Paul's eyes were opened to the truth about Jesus, he viewed Jesus' death as the ultimate gain, or the ultimate loss, I'm sorry. But when his eyes were opened to the truth, he now sees that as the ultimate gain. And I know that this is an echo of Jesus' teaching from Matthew chapter 16. There Jesus says, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit or lose their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Paul has now come to the realization that the answer is nothing. There is nothing that anyone can give in exchange for their soul. We know this because he goes on in verse 8 and following to, to really get back to the very basics of the gospel. He says, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, 
not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. That is the basics of the gospel. And friends, what we miss in any English translation here is, is, is Paul's passion and his conviction for the gospel. The NIV says, what is more? Other translations say, yes, indeed, or yet, indeed. But the literal translation, the literal translation is, yea, indeed, therefore, at least, even. Paul uses five particles here, and these five particles, they speak to the incredible force and passion and conviction that Paul has for the gospel. And Paul doesn't just consider his religious achievements a loss. He counted all things as loss. Nothing was as valuable as knowing Christ as his Lord and Savior. And Paul knew that there was joy, joy, unimaginable, uncontainable joy in knowing Christ, in knowing Christ, knowing that he could trade all his feeble attempts at his own righteousness for the true righteousness that comes only from God through faith in Jesus Christ. The goal for Paul is stated very clearly in verse 10 there. He says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. To know Christ. To know Christ. And knowing Christ, knowing someone, doesn't mean that you just know a bunch of facts about them. I know a lot of facts about Bobby Hull, but I don't know Bobby Hull. The only way you come to know someone is through a personal relationship. It is only through a personal relationship with Jesus that we know him and we know the power of his resurrection that's available to each and every one of us. It's the power that we need to withstand the sufferings and the persecutions in this life. It's the only way that we can choose joy. So what are you counting on for your righteousness? What are you counting on to get you into heaven? You know, you hear a lot of people say, well, I'm basically a good person. I haven't killed anybody. Well, that's encouraging, right? Or I'm not as bad as Hitler. Yeah, isn't it kind of weird that Hitler seems to be the benchmark for whether or not you get into heaven? You know, you're worse than Hitler, uh, you're in trouble. If you're, if you're better than Hitler, you got a shot. But friends, this is where we get back to the basics of the gospel because you cannot be good enough. You cannot do this on your own. Romans 3.10 tells us there is no one righteous, not even one. And Paul came to understand that. And all his efforts towards self-righteousness, as he says in verse 8, he calls them garbage. Garbage. 
And honestly, the Greek word is so much stronger than that. The literal translation is excrement or dung or scat or insert your favorite word here for that. But that's what it is. And, and look, if you stand before God on judgment day and say, look, look at all the good stuff I've done. Look at all of my works. Really what you're doing is you're offering up a box of dung and saying, here, this should be good enough for me. You know, Jesus taught about this in Matthew chapter 7. There he speaks of judgment day. And he speaks about the people that come to him and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles and in your name preach and in your name do Sunday school and in your name sing on the praise team? What does Jesus say? I never knew you. I never knew you. See, we can't do this on our own. Our only hope is in Christ and the work of the cross. It's only through a personal relationship, friends, with him that we are found innocent before a righteous judge. It's only through Christ that we are found righteous. It's only through Christ that we're reconciled to a holy God. It is only through knowing Christ and his salvation that we find joy. You tired of doing this on your own? Tired of trying to be good enough? You want that peace and joy that Jesus offers? You can have it. How? What does Paul say in verse 9? By what? By faith. By faith. It's that simple. It's by faith in Jesus. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Call on him. Call on him. He wants to hear from you. He wants you to know him and his joy. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and praise you and thank you, Lord, so much, so much that we are made righteous in the sight of God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, through the work of the cross, that and nothing else. And if you're here today and you are tired of trying to do this on your own, you see who you are in relation to God, and you want that joy and that peace, just say this prayer. Jesus, I'm a sinner. And I know I can never be good enough on my own. And I place my trust in you to be my Savior, to be the Lord of my life. pray that the Spirit is working in someone's heart and someone's mind right now. Pray that prayer.
and you can have the joy and the peace that Jesus offers. Father, we just we, we pray in your son's name. Amen.